Exodus chapter 20. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and the snail's pace. We come to chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. We remember the context from last week a little bit, where the Lord had come there in chapter 19, verse 5, and had declared to the children of Israel in a, at the base of a mountain in Sinai, and said to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. The response of the children of Israel uh, to the Lord through Moses was absolutely, without even hearing a single command or demand that God would make of us uh, as his people, it's sufficient that he has delivered us out of Egypt and uh, been good to us, will obey anything that he would uh, call us to do. And so now God begins to speak to them of his demands, uh, upon their life in order that in the keeping of these commands life would be the most miserable that it could be for anyone in all of human history and thus they could earn a way into heaven no that's not uh, why he gave it he gave it in order that they would be a holy people that they would be separated and different from uh, what sin and, and the flesh and the world produces as it fashions a uh, person. And so the Lord God, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, Now, we speak so often of the law in the Old Testament as the law of Moses. And it's spoken of as the law of Moses uh, frequently. But it doesn't mean that it had its origin in Moses. God gave it to Moses. Moses brought it to uh, the children of Israel. It is the law of God. We know from the book of Deuteronomy that God spoke uh, these Ten Commandments, the law, to Moses. And then God wrote them upon a tablet and delivered them to Moses. So Though it's called the law of Moses, it is indeed the law of God. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he reminds them of their history. He has delivered them from the bondage of Egypt, which represents the world to us. In other words, he has been their savior. He doesn't ask them to obey Him and obey the Ten Commandments in order to earn something from Him. He is saying, in light of the fact that I have saved you from a miserable life, I've saved you from bondage, I've saved you from slavery, in light of having this position in your life and having done this in your life, I now tell you the commandments by which you would keep. That's a proper response to one who has been your Savior. And the Bible says uh, in the New Testament, in John's epistle, that we love Him, the Lord, because He first loved us. He pulled us out of Egypt. He pulled us out of the bondage of sin and self in the world. And now when we read His commandments in the Bible, it isn't something that now I have to, you know, keep these things things grudgingly uh, to obey his word is a response of thanksgiving to him for all that he has 
already done in our lives. And so it's the same thing in the Old Testament here in the giving of the law of Moses. And he starts to give now the Ten Commandments and he declares commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The idea here that God gives the command is that they would have no other gods except for him. No other gods in his presence. Uh, sometimes people can read that and they think, well, um, no other gods before me, the Lord declares. So I can worship a lot of things in the world. I can essentially live just like everybody else in the world, uh, except I'll keep the Lord number one. Uh, he'll be numero uno God, and all of the other gods that I worship and give my life and time to will be secondary gods and God will be happy with that. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that there shall be uh, no other gods worshipped in his presence. The children of Israel, there was no danger that even in their uh, dumbest days of apostasy and walking away from the Lord, they were never going to deny the Lord completely. They were never going to say, he's, you know, bogus, we're not going to you know, follow him anymore, and, and that kind of a thing. The danger for the children of Israel was that they would continue to worship him in name, never deny him in name, but that their lives practically would become such that they would be worshiping all other different things in God that the world worshipped. And that's the danger. And, um, and that's the danger they fell prey to and ultimately went into uh, captivity to the Assyrians and the Babylonians to break them uh, of their idolatry, the worship of anything other than the true and the living God. You have God who is the creator, and then you have creation. There are only two camps in all of the universe. There is the creator, and there is uh, a creation. So to worship... Anything is the master passion of my life to worship anything other than uh, the Lord, the God of, of the Bible, is then to engage in idolatry. It is to worship, and it, worship something that is infinitely lesser than Him because by virtue of it being a created thing. Jesus said, again we spoke about it this morning, when a lawyer came up to Him and said, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And again, we're talking about a religious lawyer, not a criminal lawyer, or a civil law lawyer or something. He was an expert in the law of Moses. And this was an ongoing question. What is the single greatest of the 613 commands of Moses? What's the most important one? And it was kind of a test that they would put, uh, you know, new rabbis to. And so they pose it to Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? <clears throat> Excuse me. And Jesus said, the greatest commandment, first and greatest commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. He is basically communicating the first command. And that it is not that 80%, 60%, 40-60, 50-50 kind of an arrangement in a love relationship with God. That's not acceptable Old Testament, New Testament. The Lord is to be worshipped supremely with everything that is within us. There are to be no other gods uh, in, in our lives. Then commandment number two is he said you shall not make for yourself a carved uh, image 
uh, any likeness of anything that is in heaven. So they were not to be engaged in idolatry, uh, carving an image of God. Here is a statue of some kind that represents God. They weren't to make anything uh, a statue or an image of anything that is in heaven above. No angels or birds or, uh, you know, uh, sun, the moon, the stars, anything like that. Uh, or that is in the earth beneath, uh, or so anything that's on, on the earth, no making images that are of animals and half animals and half this and this kind of thing, or what is in the water under the earth. So no fish gods or these kind of, of images at all. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, uh, so no idolatry. There's, there's not to be some kind of physical thing that we come to as a representative of God and then now we worship that as an expression of our worship to uh, to the Lord. The Bible says and teaches that God is spirit. Remember Jesus spoke to the woman at the well talking about worshiping where? Jerusalem and, and all of the different things and all and, and, she, and Jesus said that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth and the Lord is seeking such to worship him you cannot represent a God who is spirit by any physical thing there's no need to do it it's impossible to do it maybe these false gods could be represented in this way the God that we serve cannot uh, be so no uh, localizing God to some kind of thing that we have made uh, with with our hands because then what happens is number one it doesn't represent him at all and number two then we find ourselves very quickly developing a relationship with this relic with this man-made thing and then we cease to have an intimate relationship uh, with with God it makes it pretty different for us as Christians really and also for the Jews in, in the Old Testament that there isn't this kind of physical thing. We have a relationship with God uh, that is in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And that's where the intimacy comes from. That's where the closeness comes from. Communion with God. We don't need these physical things. We have a Holy Spirit that is drawing us into a real personal relationship with God. No need for mediators. No need to represent Him in this way. Typically, people begin to worship kind of these, you know, idols or these man-made images or even a, you know, going to a particular location and they think this is holier than some place else is usually an indication that there's something wrong with their relationship with the Lord. They are losing a sense of intimacy with Him by the Holy Spirit and so now they're trying to uh, you know have uh, work up this relationship or remember a relationship that they once had with God when they sat in this section of the sanctuary or in this place in the backyard or whatever it might be. But there is not to be any idolatry no carved images in, in the worship of the Lord. He said, for, verse 5, the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So it's interesting in the Old Testament that in the New Testament, we are as Christians the bride of Christ. We are, a, we are a, a, a chaste virgin. We are betrothed to Christ. 
We aren't married to him yet in the sense that that's going to happen. We go to be with him, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But right now we are set aside completely to him. A betrothal period uh, in, in New Testament times, a man and a woman would be engaged. It was much stronger than an engagement. It was almost, it, it, to break it required a writing of divorcement. But you didn't live together. You, you uh, lived separately with your families and all until the day of the marriage and then you'd be married. And so we're betrothed to Christ, and that's the imagery. In the Old Testament, the imagery that was used between uh, the Lord and the, the children of Israel was that he was the husband and Israel was the wife. And so when they would engage in idolatry, he viewed that as spiritual adultery. He viewed it in a spiritual sense in the same way that a human being would feel if they had been betrayed in that way in a marriage, which is a very, very deep betrayal, a very, very deep pain that occurs as a result of that. And so he is a jealous God. He views his position in this relationship, his commitment in this relationship is very serious. He is very, very committed to us. He has made himself very vulnerable to us. Imagine the creator of the heavens and the earth. Number one, that he wants a relationship with you and me. I mean, there's not that many people that want a relationship with me, but God wants a relationship with me. And, uh, and then to make himself vulnerable to my faithfulness or not in, his, in, in the relationship uh, to him, whether I would accept him or reject him. He's put himself in a place of vulnerability in our, in our lives. And that gives us a chance to show our faithfulness to him and, and conversely then to bless his heart. But that's how he viewed things. So he's a jealous God. And, but jealous uh, not only for his own feelings or the fact that we have committed ourselves to him when we came to know the Lord, we've given our complete life to him, that was the commitment that we made uh, to him, and, and, and so that betrayal that would hurt him. But he also realizes we can do nothing but get hurt. <laughs> by walking away from him in this kind of marriage relationship that we have with with the lord it's i mean when you leave the best uh you're headed for trouble right so when you're worshiping the lord i mean you're in the best marriage you're in the best relationship you can be in spiritually to leave him he knows is just it's just going to be a terrible thing not only for him but for everybody else and and so he is a jealous god on a couple of different uh fronts and then he declares that he is the god who visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation but no of those who hate me so there is that realization that as a father and a mother would begin to engage in idolatry that the potential of then the subsequent generation the children the grandchildren to follow them in that idolatry uh, become haters of God as a result of that and all and they would put themselves in this uh, cycle of, of now following the idolatry of the parents and then being on the you know outside with with God until you know finally there would be something that would break through in the family and someone would begin to walk with God and bring a new history into the family. We see it all the time with the kings as we get to them a little bit later in the Old Testament. One evil king and an evil king and an evil king and then a good king. He would throw off 
the, the family history and say, I'm going to walk with God and I want my family to walk uh, with God. And God gives us the power of the Spirit to do that. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, uh, commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the Lord's name was never to be taken in vain. No one was ever to say in a court of law, I swear uh, to God, I swear in the name of the Lord that this is true, or to make a vow to somebody, um, I swear in the name of the Lord, I will repay you this $200 on Tuesday and then to fail to keep uh, that, that vow. Also includes the, um, the kind of uh, casual, um, you know, unholy use of, of the name of the Lord too. Sometimes you'll hear Christians uh, say, uh, just as a, a habit kind of coming out of the Lord, and they'll say, Oh my God, oh God. You know, oh Lord, is it, but they're not saying it to God or about, it's just a, a slang thing coming out of, of their mouth. It's to use this name in vain. I've, I've done it as an illustration. Uh, all right, so, but um, this is the way, this is something to be avoided. His name, it, it means something. It's, it, his name is to be used carefully. It's to be used reverently. And when it isn't, he says he takes uh, notice of that. He said, remember the Sabbath day? Uh, to keep it holy and six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord uh, your God so he establishes the this uh, fourth command the keeping of the Sabbath day and making it a holy day so the Sabbath day is the seventh day it's Saturday this was a, a covenant that he made with the children of Israel it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that that is not uh, reinforced and commanded of us in some form or another in the New Testament. Uh, as Christians, we are not under the Sabbath laws. The writer of the book of Hebrews declares uh, all of this in the Old Testament was a type and a shadow uh, of Jesus, of the Messiah who was to come. The Sabbath re represented a rest. And, uh, and, and for them it was a physical rest, but it was speaking of a spiritual rest that was going to come when the Messiah came. Jesus has come. We have committed our life to Jesus. And now we are in a peace relationship with God. We are at rest spiritually. We're not trying to earn our way to heaven or anything like that. And, and it, so it spoke of Jesus, the rest that he would bring into our lives. And so the Sabbath law is fulfilled for us. It's not like it, it, God just kicked it out. Uh, Jesus came and said that he didn't come to destroy the law of Moses, but he came to fulfill it, and he has fulfilled the Sabbath law uh, for us. And so it was to be a, a day of rest. It was to be a holy day. Holiness very often in the Bible means different. And so the seventh day was to be different from the other six days. And, and here's how it was to be different. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Uh, so they, they were to take at least one day here, one day, they would take one day off per week to rest. 
And uh, dad couldn't say, all right, I'm keeping the Sabbath today, but there's money to be made. All the rest of you get out there, you know, and, and go to work. It was a time to be of rest for everyone else. That day was to be different from all of the other days. And I think that there's a real uh, principle in that, really carrying over into our lives. He's made us. He's created us a certain way. We cannot run in fifth gear all the time, week in and week out, there needs to be a break away from what we do six days a week to then draw close to the Lord, to rest, to, to meditate upon Him, upon His blessings. I mean, what's, what's the use in working seven days a week like a maniac? I mean, we live in the, we live in the United States of America. We've got some competition now from China and Japan. I mean, uh, well, Japan's in there too, but China and India rising up as these economic things. We are at the epicenter of commercial Babylon. <laughs> of just work and work and work and it's money and it's corporations and it's this and then and when God speaks about commercial Babylon and the destruction of it during the great tribulation it's this whole economic system in the world that becomes more important than God but it also becomes to the world but it also becomes more important than people people are just things you put in the machine you destroy them you wipe them out you destroy their health you throw them by the wayside you grab another group and you feed that into the machine. God doesn't operate that way. And, and, and He knows that's not where life is to be found in this world. It was never the way that He, was, he, he intended it to be. Uh, there is a time to work hard. He is into good hard work. But there is a time to pull back and to reflect upon uh, what He's provided for us, what our hard work has accomplished, and to enjoy that, and to enjoy those blessings in this life too. And so the Sabbath was a, a way of, of doing that. Then notice he says, and the Sabbath is modeled after himself, and, and uh, as he created the heavens and the earth in six days, then he rested on the seventh day. It's a way to be like the Lord. For in six days the Lord made the heavens uh, and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Now this is fascinating for those of you who are kind of, you know, uh, uh, like that Genesis chapter 1 and is it literal days or are the days day ages and evolution and the whole thing and everything here the Lord and, and Moses they have a perfect chance uh, to clear up and, and uh, if it were if the, if the creation was done over a period of thousands of years or millions of years rather than in six literal days uh, as is described in the Hebrew in, in chapter 1 they could have just corrected the whole thing for in six day ages he created the heavens and the earth but he doesn't do that he comes right back here later his commentary he sticks with his first account for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day now I'm not I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer but and you got all these attacks on the Bible and this and so-called science and then a whole group of people come over here and they're scientists, they don't believe in the Lord but they're saying evolution is bogus and this whole thing and, the whole, and all around and everything. Listen, hold on to your Bibles. Hold on to your Bibles. Uh, that's the account of creation. This is the truth related to the Word of God. And I, even in my short lifetime, 
the things, the arguments that rose up against the Bible and, you know, the credibility of the Bible and these different things. And they make a big fanfare when they come up. Then they get disproved. These people melt away. And then the devil brings another attack against the Word of God. That will be uh, what history will be until there's a new heaven and a new earth. This is the history from God and we do very, very well uh, to stick with it. We'll never be disappointed for doing that. And so, he made the heavens and the earth, the sea, all that is in them. He rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. He made it holy, he made it special, he made it different from the other six days. He then moves into commandment number five, and it's interesting at this point because the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with a person's relationship with God. They are, it, it has to do with a person's vertical relationship with God. Only after he lays out the four commands that have to do with a vertical relationship with God does he move then on to giving us six commands that have to do with the horizontal, our horizontal relationship with our fellow uh, man. And there's a reason for that order. So it's widely believed that the first four commandments were on the first tablet of the law and then the, si the final six commandments on the second tablet of, of the law. But the, the reasoning is, is that no person can truly be in a right relationship with his fellow man until he is in right relationship with God. It's only as the vertical relationship is right with God that then the horizontal relationship with our fellow man can, can be right. Interesting, too, when you take the vertical relationship that he describes and then the horizontal relationship that he describes, even within the Ten Commandments, what do you have? You have a cross. You have a cross. And that's why, again, when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second command is like unto it, and that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And Jesus would fulfill all of it by hanging on a cross. The imagery is very, very beautiful, even within the Ten Commandments. So commandment number five, honor your father and your mother in order that your days may be long uh, upon the land which the Lord your God is giving uh, you. And so the word honor there means uh, to be, literally to be heavy. It means to treat with uh, respect to treat with honor and so children are in the Ten Commandments children are to respect uh, their parents they are to obey them and uh, they are to submit to their uh, authority and so here you have within the commandments you, you you look at some of the commandments that come a little bit later here and um, you think this is interesting that he begins here in this place related to the family. But the family, this, is, this commandment is a protection upon the family unit. 
And the family unit is it's the building block after the Lord is the cornerstone and, and, uh, and all. It's, it's, a build, it's the building block of, a, of, a, of society, of civilized world, is for that family unit to be right. And so he steps up and he establishes the authority structure within the home right from the get-go. The parents are the parents and the children are the children. The children will have a chance to be parents one day and then they'll know uh, how much fun that can be at times. And... Uh, but in, in the meantime, they, they are to obey their parents and they are to submit uh, to that authority because a disrespect for parental authority would introduce rebellion into the family. It would introduce anarchy into the family. It would threaten then to destroy the family uh, uh, unit and then with it the, the stability of the society as a whole. He said, the promise that goes with this, honoring of your father and your mother, there is a promise, there are good reasons why God gives this uh, both to the parents, to the family, but also to the children that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is uh, giving you. And I'm sure most of us have heard, uh, you know, the old illustration that talks about uh, the person who, uh, you know, is, you know, the young man who reaches, say, the age of 23 and, uh, and, and how much smarter his father gets every year he lives, even though his father doesn't change an iota. <laughs> you know, the time goes on and there's an appreciation for uh, how smart they were, their decisions that were behind uh, the reasons behind the decisions that were made they didn't weren't fun to obey but then as you grow older you get why they said no and why they said yes to these different things in general a child uh, in a society where you have obedience to parental authority children are going to live longer in that family by being obedient to uh, to parents especially parents that are keeping the word of God than living in rebellion against those parents because you're going to rebel against the word of God which is going to put uh, in danger so rebellion is it, it leads to premature death uh, many many times and God would have uh, that, to prevent that the the um, sixth commandment uh, you shall not murder and I think in, is in the old King James it says you shall not kill or in some version it says you shall not kill and then people think oh there shouldn't be a death penalty we should never you know a person can never go to war and shoot an enemy soldier you know in the defense of a country or something like that that's not what it's saying it literally means murder There's, there are other Hebrew words for kill this is murder here so it's not prohibiting a capital punishment uh, by a government it is not prohibiting the waging of war for the protection of, of the citizens uh, of, of a nation and when he so when he gives this commandment you shall not murder here God is protecting innocent life prohibiting the taking of innocent life and it speaks of God's uh, high regard for human uh, life number seven you shall not commit uh, adultery again this uh, commandment very very important because once again it it protected his institution of godly uh, marriage which again is uh, the, the marriage is the key ingredient in a family a family is the key uh, ingredient in a society and so this was a way of protecting uh, the health and the stability of marriage 
marriage, the institution of marriage among uh, his people. Verse 15, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And so this is God speaking of um, his regard for personal property and uh, honesty, integrity in, in our lives. There was to be a respect for the personal property of other people. So you just weren't free. I mean, you're talking about the ancient world, talking about a lot of the world today, where people just looked and that you had that and I want it, it's mine now, too bad. You know, that's not the way God operates and that's no kind of a world to live in. And, and so there was to be respect for personal property. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and so a prohibition uh, against uh, lying in, in general and then very specifically speaking also of no false accusation or false witness uh, in a witness stand in, in court. So without uh, honesty uh, in, in a population and uh, uh, you, you're going to have the whole judicial system uh, completely undermined because you'll never be able to establish facts and then you head into anarchy as a society. I mean, there's the wisdom behind uh, these commandments. You shall not covet your father's, uh, your neighbor's uh, house. And uh, so here the tenth commandment moves into of these final commandments they're talking about this is now an internal uh, thing the others are talking about outward actions this is talking about uh, the inward attitudes and inward motives and, and God is interested in that you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant nor his female servant nor his ox nor his donkey nor anything that is your neighbor's and so no covetousness covetousness is an ungodly desire for more it doesn't belong to me it's not mine it belongs to somebody else and I am not to covet uh, desire strongly what someone else uh, has what a terrible terrible list of commandments I take them right out of every courtroom in any country that I would ever want to live in I mean they're just they're fabulous just fabulous now one of the things that's interesting is sometimes people they wonder why as Christians you know we didn't kind of mount up and rise up you know with the pulling of these Ten Commandments out of um, you know the courtrooms in the United States of America under this false idea of separation of church and state and of course we realize they've got it backwards it was to separate the state from the church and they've got the thing all uh, backwards but we will not go into all that tonight but um, and so why not the fight on it part of it I think a reason a lot of the body of Christ just kind of laid low on it we don't like it we don't like what we see but we're not under the Ten Commandments as Christians and, and so sometimes we can be in a straight betwixt two where we don't want to communicate to the world uh, as Christians that we are under the Ten Commandments and we're under the Old Covenant and this is the way that you get to heaven and these kinds of things we're not. Um, but the Ten Commandments 
uh, it, it should be enforced in an unbelieving, fallen world. It is a way of bringing order to a fallen uh, world. The law of Moses, the Bible says, is still very much uh, active and in place and in, in working in a population that does not yet know God because it reveals sin to people, reveals that they're a sinner, and thus the need of a Savior. They come to know Jesus. Now they're no longer under the law or the schoolmaster because the law has done what it's supposed to do in their lives. But you, you look at the kind of honesty, integrity, the, the kind of civilization that will come out of general obedience and respect governmentally and all to these laws. And it's called Western civilization. Uh, don't be ashamed of Western civilization as it's been uh, influenced by the Bible. Not all of it has been, but what has been. Uh, all you need to do is uh, go to a Muslim-dominated uh, area that has been dominated since the 7th century by Islam. Go in and see what kind of a society is fashioned by those laws and see how much fun uh, that is. See what it produces. Uh, as Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom earns the right to be called wisdom on the basis of the kind of person it produces, the kind of society and people that it produces. And if it does not produce uh, something noble and right and majestic and godly in people, then it has no right to be called uh, wisdom. And uh, so we have been great beneficiaries in this room of the fact that our country in its early days will get into it in the future and in some of these other chapters very much fashioned after the law of Moses and we have been uh, blessed with a, a particular and unique kind of society uh, as a result of that it really is um, uh, we have to be careful at this point in history that all of it isn't thrown away with, uh, with the ridiculous decisions that are, are being uh, made today. But uh, again, we'll leave that for a future uh, discussion. Now, so there's the living, uh, giving of the Ten Commandments, verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, again Mount Sinai here, they trembled and they stood uh, afar off. So this is their... Um, uh, reaction here to the giving of, of the law and uh, produce this fear in them. And then they said to Moses, you, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Now it wasn't too long ago they were complaining about his leadership. Hey, who made you the big boss around here? We don't have to listen to you. Why can't you find us any good water and find us some food around here? And, the, you know, and so they're fighting against him and now you know they're shaking <laughs> would you please be our leader you know I don't want to talk to God you know and all of that so he's got them turned around and uh, they're acknowledging his special place of, of leadership God does what he has to do and, and uh, kind of gets it out of him and Moses said to the people uh, do not fear for God has come to test you how has God come to test him to test them by the ten commandments 
So remember, he came and said, listen, I want you to be a special people to me and a, a priesthood and, and a holy nation and all of these things and give you some commandments that will make you that in this world. And they said, you know, sign us up, whatever you say. We'll say yes to you before you give us a command. And uh, so the Lord now gives them ten commands now to see how well they do. Ah, they don't do well, but that's the purpose of the law, to expose us as sinners. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. And so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And so he doesn't have the fear, and, and he heads in closer to the Lord. And then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you uh, from heaven. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, God gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not uh, make for yourself and so what he's communicating is is I just came down on this mountain and I just communicated to you God to person that's how I do it so all of these other gods that they have they communicate to their gods through these idols you don't need to do that and I've just proved it to you that you don't need to do that I have come to this mountain, I know how to talk to you and have a personal relationship with you. And, uh, and so, no need for idols, I've just demonstrated the no need for idols in a relationship with me. An altar of earth, he said, you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice uh, on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone for you. If you use a tool on it, you have profaned it. So now he gives them instruction on how they're to worship him with the offerings, burnt offerings, offering sacrifices he's going to talk to them about it uh, in the coming chapters on this but he said when you do it and you build an altar I just want an altar of dirt and if you make an altar out of rocks out of stones and if you go to Israel there's in a lot of places there's more stones than dirt <laughs> so he said if you want to make an altar out of stones that's fine but don't cut those stones. Just pile up a bunch of stones just as you find them on the ground. Don't take and carve them and make them all fancy schmancy and everything like that. Uh, just regular stones and, and make the altar uh, out uh, of that. If you, uh, if you put a tool on it, you fashion it, then you've profaned it. The word profane, uh, so often in the Bible, it means to make common, to make like anything else, to make like everything else in the world. And, and to take and to fashion these stones, make them elaborate, make them beautiful, make them the work of man, where everybody would walk into this place to worship the Lord, and they would leave being amazed at uh, the ingenuity of man, the craftsmanship of man that's what the whole world is about and and so it's it's just to become common like the rest of the world he said when you come together and this thing is about me I want it to be all about me and I want the altar to be simple so that people don't have any competition with thinking about me when they come uh, to worship me now it's interesting that a person can look at that and say well 
uh, how come later on, when the tabernacle is built and then the, uh, the temple is built, uh, that's not a simple building? Uh, it, it, in one sense it's simple, but the furnishings of it and then the curtains that are a part of it and, and all, very elaborate, very, very beautiful. I mean, tremendous expression of, of the artistic ability of man. The difference is, is that God commanded it to be so. And in all of those things, in terms of the furnishings of the temples, at the temple, all of the interior things, the curtains that had the angels woven in, and all of it, the reason that God called for that is because it's a picture of heaven. Uh, it didn't compete with God for the attention uh, of the people. And we're told in the Bible that both the tabernacle and the temple are, uh, that were given to Moses as models of the heavenly scene. And so that's the difference behind it. It didn't come up with man trying to show off and you know, build the fanciest this. And everyone comes in and says, wow, who built that? Instead of, wow, what a God they serve uh, kind of thing. And so nothing was to compete physically uh, uh, with the Lord. And then he said, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed, uh, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So this is talking about um, the priests, they weren't to have the steps that would lead up. Apparently a, a ramp w would be good. So they're wearing robes and everything, walking up the ramp, and they just might show a little too much leg on things. Big old hairy legs. And, uh, but they, they go up, and then people walk away and say, Man, you see the legs on that guy and everything? And, and the deal. But, uh, so the flesh of man wasn't to, uh, to detract in the service, away from, uh, from the Lord and the attention being placed upon the Lord. So no thing and uh, nobody was to compete with the Lord for the attention of his people at any service where God was supposed to be the center of attention. And he's establishing that with them right now. Let's head into chapter uh, 21. There's several places where we can make an easy break and... Uh, Continue it next time, but let's let's head, head into it a, a little bit. Now, the interesting thing is, we head into chapter 21 through chapter 23. What the Lord does now is He takes those Ten Commandments and He uh, now communicates to them what those Ten Commandments look like in the nitty-gritty of life, in the nitty-gritty of ancient life. And so this is what he's going to illustrate for them so that when they're interpreting the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses in later times and how does this apply to this situation in a more modern world and all of this, they can see the principles that are there, the commands that are also there in it and properly interpret the heart and the intent of God uh, behind the commandments. Now, he gives all of these commandments and, uh, and doesn't feel guilty about it at all. He doesn't say, now listen, I, I'd like to uh, respectfully uh, suggest to you. <laughs> say, Come on, God, get a backbone. Tell us, what do you want? I mean, we don't have to worry about that with our God. God just comes in and says, this is the commands. This is how I want to do things. Why? He owns everything. Everything. It's all His. The sun, the moon, the stars, all that we are, all of everything. It's all His. 
And uh, there's a way that he wants everything to be treated and handled, and, uh, and he knows how that ought to be, and uh, he has that right to tell us how to manage these things also. I, for one, and I know you too, am thankful for the instruction. So he begins now with laws governing the uh, master-servant uh, relationship of the ancient world, the treatment of servants, although uh, slavery is, uh, is still uh, practiced widespreadly. Widespread uh, in the world today. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy, hear the rules about about the servant and the master. If you buy, talking to Jews, a Hebrew servant, another Hebrew, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. Now, sometimes in the, in that ancient world, a person uh, would sell themselves as a slave or as a servant to another person, sometimes in order to pay off a debt to that person. They owed him uh, $25,000, and now they have to pay that debt off, and so the person says, I will take it in labor, and this will be the arrangement, and you'll work uh, so, so many years for that. No one was to work over six uh, years. You were, they were to be freed uh, at the end of that. Sometimes, and this is again very, very true of much of the world today, is you were better off as a servant of a good master, a generous master, a wealthy master, than you were out there trying to scrape uh, together some chicken bones to eat uh, that day for yourself. And so sometimes don't look at it and say, well, the poor servant, they were always just pushed into this thing against their will. Many times they would look and say, it is very, very difficult to put, uh, you know, to get two quarters to rub together uh, right now it is advantageous for me to become a servant to a good master and a kind master uh, through this season someone who will keep me fed and clothed that will be mutually beneficial I will work hard uh, for them but the uh, a Hebrew servant was only to be forced to serve uh, or serve no, no more than six years, seventh year released. If he comes in by himself, just a single guy comes in, makes himself a, a, a servant, he shall go out by himself at the end of six years. If he comes in married, he's already married when he comes in, then his wife shall go out with him. They, can both, they both leave at the same time. But if his master has given him a wife, and this was common where a person, a man would come in, become a, 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 a part of, you know, the servants there, be given a wife that was also a servant, and, uh, and this wife now has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, uh, and he shall go out uh, by uh, him himself. And, but if the servant, and this is fascinating for New Testament application, but if the servant plainly says, number one, I love my master. Wow. End of six years. This, I, I'm just not going to do any better than this. I'm not, not going to find a better place in life than, than serving this master. I love my master. 
my, uh, uh, my wife and my children and I, uh, let's see, and says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. So he loves his wife and his children and he makes a free will choice. I will not go out free. I choose not to be released at the end of the six years. Then his master shall bring him to the judges and he shall also bring him to the door to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. So he'd go to the judges uh, to who would be a witness to this. That's a legal thing that's happening here. They take his earlobe, put it up against the wood and the master would drive an awl through it. The idea would, uh, is that an earring would then be added uh, to it as a mark of, of him being this kind of, of a servant and pierce his ear with the awl and then he shall serve him and notice that last word forever. What you have here is what is referred to in the New Testament as a doulos, a bondservant. And the reason it's of some interest to us is that the Apostle Paul referred to himself in the New Testament as a doulos, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he is using this imagery. And he is communicating about his relationship with the Lord has the same three characteristics of this relationship. Where a person comes to God and says, I love you. I am never going to find a better master than you in all of life. I know life does not get better than the life I have experienced under you for these years. So I choose as an act of my will. No one is forcing me. That's the second characteristic. I choose as an act of my will to be your servant forever. And that person now was a doulos, a bondservant uh, of this master, but a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul said, that he was. I love him, I have committed my life to him of my own free will, and I've done it forever. There's no turning back. It's the high, Paul considered it the highest title that he could wear in life. A doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And it's true, because of the master that the Lord uh, is. But if a man, and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male servants do. So here you've got a little different circumstance, and God uh, put some special protections on um, a father selling a daughter into slavery. And basically, what it is, it's not open slavery that's happening here, but selling her to be married into another family. But she's she's kind of being sold in into that. Um, in those days, I mean, a woman was kind of more or less sold into that situation anyway, just by virtue of the dowry. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But here you would have a circumstance that could happen very, very frequently, where here's a father who is maybe just barely um, making ends meet for his family. Uh, he looks at how hard his life is. He looks at how hard life is for his wife and for his family. And he says concerning, you know, his daughter, I want her uh, to have more. I want her to have better. I don't want her to be facing starvation four times a year and this kind of thing. And he sees the opportunity to sell her uh, a as a wife 
to a wealthier man or to another family because the father of that family wants to to purchase her to make her the wife of one of his sons. And so he would then sell her into that. Now, what God wanted to make sure is that even though the father is selling his daughter into that situation, that for the purpose of marriage, that when she marries, there's no more of this slave thing, no more of this servant thing. If, you're, if you are purchasing her for marriage and you bring her into the family, she is family now. She has rights. You can't just get rid of her and say, I'll grab another slave. And so he's protecting the rights of female uh, servants in, in that kind of situation. So if a man sells his daughter to be a female uh, slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not serve her, uh, please her master who has betrothed her to himself, and, and so he's married her now or been engaged to her for marriage, and the transaction is all completed, uh, then he shall let her be redeemed. And so betrothal was a one-year period before um, you uh, ended up, uh, you know, marrying. And did I already say this earlier in this message? Or was that this morning? It's really weird. You think I'm weird, right? <laughs> did I say it five minutes ago? Okay. Uh, Sundays are funny. But anyway, you would, in that culture, you would, you would, uh, you wouldn't just say, okay, we're June 4th, we're going to get, you know, married. There would be, you would have a betrothal period where you would be kind of engaged to a person to be married for a full year before you'd be married. But it was more than an engagement because to break that betrothal required a writing of divorcement. So you would, each of you live with your parents and all and uh, in separate houses and, and all and then come together to be, uh, to be married on that set uh, date. So they're in this period where there hasn't been the consummation of the marriage she's betrothed to him and in the course of that betrothal he looks and says I don't like her she she displeases me I don't want to marry her then the Lord comes in and says all right you have to allow her to be purchased back by her family and at what price we don't know but um, she was not to then be sold to a foreign people or something like that she had to be returned uh, back to her family again protection of her life and uh, he, shall have, he, uh, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt uh, deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, purchased her for, as a wife for uh, his, his son, uh, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. So even though she is, has been purchased in this way to become his wife, she is not to be viewed as less than any of the other daughters in the family or any of the other daughters-in-law in the family. She's not to be viewed as coming from the wrong side of the tracks so or she was a slave that was purchased and brought in the family. God says, you bring them in, this is how you have to bring them in and how you have to see them. You treat them uh, as family if you're going to make that kind of, of a commitment. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food 
her clothing and her marriage rights, that is shelter and to be among, you know, supported and among the larger uh, family. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying uh, any money. And so she'll be, would be released at that particular point uh, to move forward uh, in her life. Now we look at these kind of things and uh, they can seem kind of foreign to us in a, con- in a country that knows so much freedom. But what the Lord was doing is he he was interjecting himself into a a very miserable kind of context in the ancient world in terms of how people treated other people. And so these protections that he is establishing for the valuing of human life, how people are to be seen and how they are to be treated, unprecedented uh, in human history up to that time. Stunning protections that he was giving upon people and communicating to his people how they were to view people in the world. And so very, very beautiful, beautiful laws will continue uh, through them. Uh, they become more and more fascinating really as we, as we would head through them, Lord willing, uh, next week. Let's stand together. The worship team come forward. That would be great.